It's the same thing with an airplane. The, the stress tests that they do on those things and capability and the structural integrity of those wings is just so unbelievable that even the potential turbulence that we could experience that we absolutely avoid 100% of the time is not gonna hurt the airplane. So it's like a boat through choppy water. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Evan Hunt about flying the 737 MAX, what it's like to land a $100 million machine in zero visibility, and becoming one of the youngest pilots at American Airlines. Fear of the unknown is to human behavior what getting randomly selected for additional screening is to being late for your flight. That is to say, common and extremely inconvenient. Because most people never took a physics class with the intention of designing flying machines, most people don't really understand how airplanes work, and you can't fault them. This lack of understanding undoubtedly contributes to a pervasive fear of flying as most people assume the worst at the first sign of a bump up in the air. Luckily, my guest today has a pretty good idea how this works since it's his job to make sure the airplane is still usable after each landing. Evan Hunt is a 737 pilot for American Airlines and although he's missing the gray hairs of his older colleagues, he's managed to have a meaningful career in aviation thus far. Growing up, he bonded with his dad, also a pilot, over their love of airplanes and aviation, which led him to pursuing his pilot's license at a very young age. I think I got it on my 17th birthday or maybe the day after. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you can get your pilot's license at 17 and you can solo when you're 16. It, that must be it. And then okay. if but the, the strange ironic part is you can actually get your glider license. And again, don't quote me on this. I think it's 16, it might be 15, but you can get your glider license before you get your pilot's license, which I think is ironic because the glider has no engine. Yeah. Where seems the, like a the little sketchy. Does. Right. Yeah. It almost seems like the opposite, but I was 17 when I got that. And what was your first solo flight like? I'm not even going to ask you if you remember it. I do. I remember vividly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody forgets that one. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was definitely, it was definitely nerve wracking. I think too, at that age, that's a funny age to do something like that because you know, you sort of have this invincibility aspect to life where you really don't feel like you're in danger doing most things at 17. But right. I think that was probably one of those activities where I started to sense that it's it's really a big responsibility and you kind of have to be careful about it and um yeah it just felt like a big thing you know what i mean you're you're sort yeah. of looking next to you and there's no one there and you just learn how to drive a car so it's just kind of a strange thing to do at that age but i i definitely remember it. it was a lot of fun it was exciting definitely scary and it was kind of one of those things that you wanted to do and do it well and cross it off and say you did it just to get past that like mental hurdle, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine, well, I really, actually, I really can't imagine taking off without anybody there. I, I took one flying lesson once and I mean, obviously like takeoff is no problem, full thrust sure. and pull the stick back. But, um, yeah, I mean, once we started doing anything other than that, I was like, man, I'd be so <laughs> lost without this guy sitting next to me. Well, I was going to ask if you, uh, if you'd done any lessons, cause you said, you said, uh, a few minutes ago when we were talking, you mentioned VFR 
And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know what VFR is. And I know that you travel all the time, but even people, you know, seasoned travelers don't know VFR or IFR. Well, I am definitely what you would consider like an av geek, very, very into aviation in general. Sure. So I would say I probably read up on issues. Certainly I read crash reports. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just find the whole thing very interesting. I would like to get my, my pilot's license at some point. Sure. I mean, I'm certainly not someone that has a fear of flying, but the more no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. The more I, I read into, well, the more I know about aviation, the more I learn about it, the more I, I am reassured. And sure. there are so many redundancies. I mean, that's kind of like the name of the game in aviation. Yeah. It's tough to explain that to people who do have a fear of flying, I find. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think they do think of it as like, okay, I know how to drive a car. This person yeah. knows how to fly a plane. That could obviously not be much more different, not to mention the training. And mm-hmm. so I do have a profound respect for the engineering that goes into making it so safe. I, I actually kind of have this vendetta against people saying uh, safe travels or like have a safe flight because I don't know. I'm just like, I'm so much more likely to have an issue on the way to the airport. So I just like to tell people smooth travels because I think uh, that's kind of encapsulates the same sentiment but still acknowledges like all the work that goes into making aviation as safe as it is yeah i think that's that's really uh that's really intelligent and i think we kind of have this saying when when somebody asks us about you know the safety or how safe is it my answer is um usually the same answer which is the most dangerous part of our day is the van ride to and from the airport and i mean statistically that's very very true you know yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. It is well, wild. Yeah. Like you said, the van ride to the airport because uh, you are a commercial pilot now. But I want to, before we kind of get into that, and, and you fly for American, right? Yes. Before we go all the way down that road, I, st- I kind of want to back up a bit. And how did you start, once you had your private pilot's license, how did you start making that transition into flying for money, flying commercially? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are several ratings that you get uh, when you, if, if your goal is to be, let's say an airline pilot, there are several ratings that you, and tests that you go through and obtain to get to that position. And each one is, has a specific purpose and goal. Um, and as you make your way through those ratings, different types of careers will open up. So um, you know, we touched on a private pilot's license, which allows you to fly a small airplane basically for fun and good weather. And then you move on to an instrument rating and that instrument rating allows you to fly in IFR conditions. So now you can, uh, you can't fly for pay yet, but you can fly, um, in the clouds mm-hmm. with, you know, referencing your instruments and you can move on and get a multi-engine rating. Now you can fly airplanes with two engines instead of one. And most people, from there, uh, they'll usually it depend. The order will change, but they'll usually move on to something called a CFI, which stands for Certified Flight Instructor Rating, and they're basically training to become a flight instructor. Um, and you know, I skipped one before that is a commercial rating. Okay. And a commercial rating allows you to fly for pay. Uh-huh. Um, so, so now you've obtained three, four or five certificates, one allowing you to fly for pay and another allowing you to teach students. Now these certain careers will start opening up. So now you can be a flight instructor. You can teach others how to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also allows you to build a lot of time. So, right. 
um, when you, you know, later down the line, you apply for some type of flying job, they're going to want uh, to, to judge the candidates. You know, they have certain ways to figure out if you're a good candidate, but one that everybody agrees on is flight time. So mm-hmm. being a flight instructor and teaching other people how to fly is a good way to build a lot of flight time without paying for it yourself. In fact, you're being paid and it may not be, uh, sure. you know, it may not be, uh, a huge paycheck, but it's something. And, um, and then there's different types of flight instructor. Um, you can be an instrument flight instructor. You can be a multi-engine flight instructor, but with those flight instructor and commercial ratings, they open up a whole avenue of flight jobs. So now you can go fly a multi-engine airplane that's maybe used for cargo purposes. You uh, could run, you know, you could run bank checks and um, fly cargo and 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 earn hours that way. Fly and bank pre- checks. What's that? Fly bank checks. Yeah, yeah. that still happens. <laughs> you know, I don't know how often that that happens uh, anymore, but. When I was, it was still a very popular job to do uh, when I was at that stage, which was 2009, 2010. Yeah, people were still doing that. Hmm. Yeah, kind of funny to. Um, <laughs> this check kind needs of to a, be cashed tonight. I know, I know man. I, I know people who don't even know how to write a check and no fault of their own. It's just yeah, there's that no was need me. to. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no reason to know, you know. Um, That's really funny. I didn't know that was ever a thing. <laughs> yeah yeah those those pilots uh there's a lot of respect for those pilots too because they would do routes that were usually in the middle of the night and there was there was a lot of flying some some people would fly six to seven hours a night just from wow. chicago cincinnati indianapolis st louis back to indy back to chicago it was a lot of flying and you're pretty young how old are you i'm 34 and so you're flying you're uh, a first officer right I'm a first officer, yeah. First officer for American Airlines. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, I can't imagine there are a lot of guys younger than you. There are, there are not a lot of guys younger than me. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. I got a really early start. It's, I mean, my having a, a, a father who's an airline pilot um, has a lot of perks, if I'm going to be honest. And one of them sure. is probably the most important is the early start, you know? Um, and he kind of knew the importance of seniority. So, uh, sure. n- yeah, not only did I start really early, there were summers where when I was in college, I'd come back and I would get one of those ratings in the summer while my colleagues were taking a break. I was getting mm-hmm. an additional rating and kind of moving ahead. Yeah. Um, so I, I really, there's a lot of it that I was kind of coached through to be honest um and that that was super helpful and it was kind of the same with the interview process you know I, you meet people and they they sort of show you um hey this this might be the best way to to prep for the interview and this might hey maybe you should volunteer for this and you just sort of start doing things a little earlier with um, right. you know you with the that pointers. yeah you get the pointers yeah so, so like you said, your dad is a, is a pilot and he, he works for American as well. Is that right? He used to. Yeah. He, uh, he retired in August of 2019. Okay. Did you, did you ever get to fly with him? Is that, no, would that would have been possible? So I, yeah, it would, it would have been pretty neat. And there are, there are several stories where, uh, a parent in there and their kid gets to fly together, but he was on the 787, uh, for 
I think the entire time I we overlapped our stays at American. I was uh-huh. there for maybe three years before he retired, and uh, I was on the seven three. He was on the seven eight. We never never overlapped, but we did get to sit in each other's jump seats. That was kind of cool. That's cool. And and so did he? He retired because presumably he's sixty five. Correct. Yeah, you do have to. It's a, a mandatory retirement age. So he reached sixty five and had to hang up the hat. There's this segment I like to do on this podcast called "Explain That Graham." So. The one that I found from your feed was from November 2016 and you're, you're in the cockpit with your mom and your dad and, uh, uh, he was flying you guys to China and you said you were going to pay particularly close attention to the landing. So (laughs) one, how smooth was the landing? And, um, tell me a little bit more about being flown around by your dad. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. He's never, he's never going to let this go if I say this, but I, he, he had the smoothest landing I think I've ever I've ever felt and I'm not, I know, I know I'm biased and, uh, but I, I was really ready to critique him and I really don't think I can. And apparently the 787 is a pretty tough airplane to put down smoothly. Hmm. Why is that? uh, You know, I can't remember exactly why that is. It's something to do with the way the gear is, but, um, you, somebody on the airplane would probably have to explain it to you. I don't, I think it's probably, it's probably over my head at the moment. I don't know exactly why, but he mm-hmm. greased that thing on, man. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So he, nailed it. he nailed it. And I'm sitting next to my mom and she looks at me and she said, Oh no, he's never gonna he's never gonna let us forget that one. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear an audible woo from the cockpit? <laughs> oh man. If we were close enough to the cockpit, we probably would have. I think we were we were sitting <laughs> in coach during that, but yeah, he he nailed it. But he's uh he I definitely I've always looked up to him um, in a lot of ways, but he's he has been a very uh, influential airline captain, and from my perspective, and even the people I fly with at work today say, "Oh man, if you know, if I could, uh, if I could shake his hand right now, I would," because he was a great captain, and I think he displayed that in several different ways. But one of them is kind of interesting. He he flew to Asia for I don't know how long, maybe 12 or 13 years, maybe even longer than that. He did a lot of Chicago to Beijing on the triple seven and then the seven eighty seven. But, um, just mm-hmm. to give you a quick idea, he started to learn Mandarin and he got really pretty good at it. Oh, I don't wow. know if I can, I don't know if I can say he's fluent. Um, you'd probably have to ask him, but he's really good conversationally and everything. And he got to the point where he's, you know, he's talking to passengers at the gate in, in Mandarin and he's, He's doing his his PAs on the intercom. Uh, he's doing all of those in Mandarin. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff that you don't really see a lot of people put that much effort into. But um, he really loved his job. And I think that probably made a big difference. If he didn't know Mandarin, when you get those uh, bilingual announcements, who who's doing that? Who's the, who's doing the other language? Yeah, it's a good question. On, on an so, on a English speaking carrier. Yeah, we have speakers. So... Um, the flight attendants, we, we have certain, um, types of speakers that we basically have to have on certain flights. So there would be a flight attendant who's designated as a Mandarin speaker on that flight. And, um, he or she would do those, those announcements. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Good question. So, yeah, so you were flying to China, I'm assuming, I mean, I guess you wouldn't have been working for American at that time, but if you're a family or an employee of, of an airline employee, you get some pretty cool perks to travel. So what, what is your, 
schedule like i i you fly two weeks on two weeks off or it's uh it's not two weeks on two weeks off it's sort of all over the place but the easiest way to explain it um well i say all over the place because it changes monthly so every month uh every pilot at american airlines has the ability to bid for the next month's schedule and there's a lot of flexibility in how you can do that and what you might obtain so to explain it the simplest way i can there's two types of schedules. You could be on reserve or you could hold, uh, we call it holding a line, but it was, it'd be to hold an actual hard schedule. So if you're on reserve, for example, you might be on call Monday through Thursday of this week. And then you have Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. And then you might be on call Monday through Wednesday. And then maybe you have four or five days off. It's okay. sort of, you know what I mean? And you bid for for that cadence, if if you could call it that. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with holding a line. The difference is that instead of being on call, you know you're going to go to Boston. You know you're going to Dallas. You sure. know you're going to San Jose, for example. So when you're off, um, my understanding is you can basically ride anywhere American or their partners. Is that right? Anywhere they, yeah, anywhere they fly. Yeah. Yep. And it, you basically have different priority depending on the airline, but, um, I don't, I don't know of anybody that we necessarily cannot fly on. You just have to do it. Um, you you have to sign up for those available seats in different ways. So for example, if I want to fly, uh, American airlines to Mexico, I can go on my website and sign up for a jump seat and basically reserve the jump seat. And, and I know I have it. Uh, Whereas United, uh, I would have to sign up for that seat at the gate. I don't yeah. know, an, an hour prior to the flight. Right. Sure. And then, um, so it has to be available. Yeah. And if you're doing international, like last year, I took Cathay Pacific, I think to Hong Kong, it's sort of the same where you sign in online, but you don't really know if you have a seat until last second. So it's, it's, it's all standby. You know, that's, that's yeah. kind of the, if you were to come up with um, pros and cons that, that standby would kind of be in the con list because right, it's hard really to plan around that a little bit. Yeah. You're basically picking out flights that are more open than other flights, or you're just taking a chance on, on the flight that's full and, you know, you just have to have your expectations in the, in the right spot. So do you like to travel as much as you can during your, your dedicated off time? I do. Um, I do. It's like a pretty sweet perk. Yeah, it's a sweet perk perk. I think, um, I I've always loved to travel and, um, yeah, it excites me. It doesn't, I, I think it's probably exhausting for some people and having it, you know, it's kind of funny because we have these travel perks, but our job involves a lot of travel, obviously. So it's right. like if you're, if you're traveling Monday through Wednesday for your trip and all you're doing is jumping on airplanes for three days and then you get home and you have four days off, a lot of people don't want to go back to the airport and go travel. Right. right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's understandable. I don't, I don't have that yet. When you're traveling uh, for leisure, can you still transit the airport as a crew member? Yes. Okay. That's nice. Saves you a little time there at least. Yeah, it does. And, and certain things change, you, you know, you have, to, you might have to be in uniform in order to take all your liquid liquids through. But, um, yeah, for the most part, 
you, you can do that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. How was the how are the Q seats that you sat in? The Q suites, like the Qatar Q suites? Yeah. Oh, Q suites. Is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah. How were those? That was the best business class I've flown. <laughs> but yeah. And um, I mean, it was also better than several uh, first class products, but the combination of the food quality, the oh. privacy with the door, and just I thought the great, very friendly service. Yeah. It, it all really made it an, an incredible experience. And it was cool because I flew that as part of a, a web series I was shooting last year with the points guy. And the concept for that episode was to bring someone who'd never flown business class before on oh, a trip. Cool. And then we were also going to do everything with miles. Anyway, right. um, obviously that guy had never flown up front before. And so, I mean, for he, that, he for him to even like see that cabin, I mean, I think he was like absolutely blown away. So for yeah. me, it was really cool because I, I could tell, wow, this is certainly a step above. But it was honestly, it was really cool to just see my friend's reaction because oh. I definitely do get a bit tainted where I'm like, okay, oh, you know, this business class is kind of so-so. And so many people are like, what do you mean? It's business class. But to just to see his reaction and have him just love absolutely everything about <laughs> it, it really made it special. That's so and, cool. And, um, you know, the other thing that was really cool was they alternate the seats you know, that's not necessarily anything revolutionary, but even rows or whatever it is, the seats are touching. Um, well, there's a very, there's about an inch and a half between them and there's a little divider that goes all the way down. Okay. And so they make it into like a double bed. Oh, I was kind of wondering about that. Cause when I was looking at your, when I was watching your story, it, it almost looked like it, they were close enough to, to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was really cool. This was a buddy, uh, I played college soccer with, so he and I were very close. I mean, you, cool. you'd obviously want that thing up if you didn't know the person who was yeah, sitting right. on the other side. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, it was just fun, you know. Cool. So I highly recommend recommend Qatar Q Suites. So how how are you traveling around in all these fancy first class uh, cabins? Are you using points mostly? Yeah, definitely. The most recent stuff in my feed, where you can see me up in the front, it was from this series that I shot last year, and we we shot these episodes where the premise was basically book a trip with your points and miles, uh -huh. you know, show people how to fly 10 different uh, products with, with miles and points. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was pretty cool because I was getting flown around in business and first and, um, yeah, you know, I, I was taking videos and photos of it. So that, that's really how I was doing all that stuff from the year before. And then it had been a big hobby of mine to try to use miles and points as much as possible before that. So that's, that is definitely how I do it. I mean, every once in a while, there's like a really good fare or um, mistake fare and I can snag those every once in a while, but for the most part, it's miles and points. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I was watching your stories about the credit cards too. I found that super interesting because I've always felt like I've been a little bit behind the curve with uh, the credit card game and their benefits and points. And, you know, I've got buddies that are on top of that and, uh, I always just found it super interesting, but I've never had enough. Well, I'm sure I've had enough time, but I haven't designated enough of my free time towards it. So I was going through there thinking, wow, he's got so much knowledge about these credit cards. No wonder he's kind of killing it with all the points. Yeah. Well, and you, I mean, you obviously don't earn any miles, I presume ever. Right? No, I don't know a thing about it. <laughs> That's kind of the bummer downside of yeah. uh, of the perk. It's like 
yeah, you don't get any of the yeah. the miles and points. When you are traveling and, you know, spending nights in hotels, I'm assuming you're getting, you got like a per diem. Obviously, you're not getting hotel points or hotel status either, right? Correct. There were, there, there used to be, and there still may be, I'm not sure. There used to be a couple hotels that would, I, I may not be correct, but I do remember s- some people that I used to fly with would, would try to get points sometimes at certain hotels. And it, I think it might've worked occasionally. I, I almost never see anybody do that. In fact, I, I know for sure I haven't seen anybody do that for years. So um, I don't think they're rewarding any crew members with any type of hotel points, but we, we do get a per diem. That's, that's about it. Yeah. Well, that makes it really tough for you because I mean, really the only way you could earn miles or points is by opening a credit card and getting the bonus. And then obviously anything you spend money on outside of your business travel. Yes, that's correct. Could get you some credit card points, but I will say you're in a tough position because you know, the percentage of things most people spend money on that nets them the most points uh, would earn you absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So that's a tricky one. <laughs> it is tricky. It's kind of funny. Last, last year, actually about almost a year ago. Uh, well, it'd be a year ago next month. We, um, we went to Vietnam with a bunch of people and, uh, my buddy tells me he's going to Vietnam. I think he was on air Canada and he's going first class to and from pretty sure. And yeah. he didn't, he didn't pay anything for it. It was all in points. And I'm looking, I'm signing into my credit card online, looking at how many I have. And I'm like, how do you even obtain that amount of points? It's just <laughs> mind blowing to me. So yeah, I think I'm way behind the curve in that department. Well, you, so when you are riding as, I, I guess, just like with a partner on your off days. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, it's like whatever seat is available. So sometimes you could get in business, but you're certainly not guaranteed it. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. In fact, the the place that we go so often in Mexico, um, the reason that I started to go there was because the loads for those flights were so empty for some reason. I don't know why, Uh, but but we used to have a direct flight from Chicago to Puerto Vallarta mm -hmm. and I would get first uh, almost every time. It was awesome. And, Uh, um, and that started to change, but you really don't have a lot of control. Well, you don't have any control over it. Um, the only control right. that you have over it is check-in time. So, you know, if, if I'm an employee and you're an employee and we, you check in before I do, you're going to get that upgrade first if it's available. Mm. But other than that, there's no way to get it unless it's available. So some, sometimes you get lucky and, and you do look out for that, especially on those long hauls. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to Europe or you're going to Beijing, you might, you might go a different day or you might take the later flight because there's a better chance of getting first. Uh, any chance you could um, let the let the crew have the crew let you into those crew rests? No, that would be great. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that's because they're I, especially on the long haul flights. Um, you know, the Asia flights they're they're being used the whole time. Oh sure, they have yeah. like shifts. They have shifts, so that you know the we call them aug- augmented crews. But if there's four pilots going to Beijing, you take off. And 10 minutes after takeoff, there's, there's pilots using those crew rests right away. So that would be neat, but no chance. The best I've gotten was business class on the seven, eight, but that was, it was awesome. It was nothing compared to, to some of the stories I'm watching of you in, in, um, in the Q suites, but it was pretty <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously an aircraft cabin is a very confined space and I just personally think get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing the creativity that goes into the different designs that people put into that space. 
And um, I really find the different onboard products to be really interesting. And, you know, the, the higher up you get in terms of like first class products, the big differentiator is not so much the physical seat, but the service and the, the soft product, as they say. I'm, I'm curious about service too. As far as service goes, what's super high up on your list? Well, I've flown Cathay business many times and it's great, but from, from what I've heard and seen about their first class, uh, I would really love to, to try that. I mean, the Asian carriers in general tend to really kill it with the service. Sure. And, you know, I flew Japan airlines first class as part of that series. And you, you notice just these little things that they do. Like anytime they talk to you, they come and they kneel down. So they're at your eye level Oh, interesting. Um, you know, they wrote me a handwritten note uh, with my name. I was waiting for me at my seat. You know, it's just all these small little things. things. Yeah, the small things. Um, they're super uh, superficial things, really, but uh, they make you feel so at home. It's great to see what they come up interesting. with. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I also know that um, at certain carriers, I, I believe it's um, you, you have to have a certain number of years of seniority in order to work certain cabins. Yeah, um, so absolutely. they really want, yeah, they really want that experience level there um, before you're, you know, you're working first class cabin, for example. Yeah, generally, it does seem like a lot of the the flight attendants uh, are older. I mean, you don't usually have the younger ones. It's not the rule, but um, sure, it's, it's seems to be the case most of the time. Sure. I want to ask you about the 737 Max because it, it looks like you've you've flown it. Is that right? Yes, I have. Yeah. I guess, first of all, when they're back in service, I want to hear your thoughts on flying one. I know we've kind of covered safety, but let's just start there. Uh, when they're back in service, you're going to feel comfortable flying one? Yeah, ab- absolutely. To be honest, I, f- I felt comfortable flying flying it the whole time. It was a great airplane, but yeah, I'm going to have no reservations whatsoever. And in fact, if, from what I've heard, we're going to have a lot of extensive training when it does come back online, um, but before we're even, uh, allowed to step on the thing. So, and I guess Boeing's changing some of the, um, some of the computers on there and, and they're adding backup computers and it's absolutely going to be, uh, no problem for me to get on one. They're rebranding it to the dash eight, right? 737 eight. I believe so. I think that that max name is going to be a bit contentious for, uh, a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably uh, necessary to to maybe name it something different. But mm-hmm. yeah, I hadn't heard exactly if they had. Is is that for sure? Do you know? I don't think that's been confirmed by Boeing, but I think they referred to it as oh, that they? in some sort of public gotcha document. They're just yeah. kind of quietly calling it something different now. Yeah, I wasn't 100 percent sure what they were going to call it, but I had heard that. Yeah. I mean, you know, makes sense. How much sim time do you think you're going to have to do before you fly that again? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't know how much time we're going to specifically be inside the sim with that aircraft, but with, with any type of training we do, there's, there's a lot of extensive training in, in many different ways. So we usually start with training on the iPad before we even end up at the schoolhouse in person. So we're doing a lot of at-home training. And that's good just because there's a lot of numbers and things that you don't necessarily need to be in a classroom to Mm -hmm. memorize or review. It's just like systems and buttons and cockpit differences. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Putting things into the flight computer and um, which page to find that on and, and things like that. So we do a lot of a lot of extensive iPad training. And uh, when we get to the schoolhouse, there's uh, usually several days of ground school where we're covering each system extensively with an instructor and they're asking us certain questions and we're asking them questions and it's pretty good back and forth. And then, um, then you'll get into the simulator with a sim instructor and those sim instructors are, they're really good at what they do. Super, super knowledgeable. And they're basically making sure that uh, not only are you familiar with the aircraft, but um, you're familiar with the company procedures and, you know, mm-hmm. certain standardizations on the fleet just to make it easier to fly with different people um, all the time. We're all doing the same thing, basically. They never let those uh, sim instructor guys into the real thing, do they? These guys are like, oh, this is, let's go crazy. Let's try <laughs> some stuff. One engine out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. We just had a, we just had a check airman on, on our jump seat, um, two days ago, actually. And, uh, it is really, it's pretty refreshing to have them on board. Um, and they'll basically, we get these, these check rides periodically. We don't know they're going to be there. They show up and, um, they sit in the jump seat and take notes. (laughs) notes. Yeah. And, uh, it's, and it's always a really friendly process. It's, it doesn't feel like a test, but it's, it's really pretty cool because they're so knowledgeable that, you know, there's certain things that you're just, you're never done learning, you know, you're never done learning. There's always something new and something that's changed and, uh, a better technique. So it's pretty cool to, uh, to have them on board, but I really admire that about, about what you do and about what all, you know, kind of commercial pilots at the higher level doing. I mean, you're like you said, you're always learning. Yeah, always learning for sure. That's definitely, that's definitely true. It's a really extensive process to, um, to really feel comfortable on those airplanes. And, and at the end of all of that, they put you through this, uh, this testing phase where you're in the simulator and you're actually doing a real world scenario. Say it's a flight from LaGuardia to Boston. And they're throwing um, engine failures at you and uh, maybe an engine fire and uh, an unreliable airspeed. And you're having this opportunity to go through these stressful situations with a crew member in real time. And, um, you know, you just have this opportunity to practice those things that if they were to happen, they would be stressors. And the point of the training is to basically train the stress out. And now it becomes... Um, sort of a litany in a way where you're just doing as you're, you know, you're taking certain rote knowledge and you're applying it to a situation that you've already been trained on. That's abnormal normally, but you've almost put a certain level of norm normacy into it. You know what I mean? The big one that freaks people out probably because it's just the most common is turbulence. But I mean, my understanding is turbulence is rarely if ever actual an actual safety hazard but what sort of things can they do in a simulator regarding turbulence to make make your life hell (laughs) like a better word yeah for sure um so turbulence like you said is not in and of itself dangerous to the aircraft we avoid it in a lot of ways because it's it could be dangerous to the people inside the aircraft just because objects could you know uh, objects yeah. could, could become airborne. Flying. 
yeah, people could become airborne. Yeah, it's not it's not dangerous to the airplane, but certainly uncomfortable every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but there's not a lot that you can train in the aircraft simulator to avoid it. But um, there is a lot of on the ground training uh, to avoid it. You know, you you learn about weather and. For example, maybe certain weather patterns around uh, mountainous terrain and um, uh, how to read certain weather graphs and wind charts. And uh, and what's really neat the last five years even or so is the technology that's coming through our iPads that's being updated with the, the weather software on our iPads is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the last update or one of the most recent updates, I can go into my weather app and I can enter the time of departure. What is this, and Yahoo Weather? <laughs> Yahoo Weather, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool, yeah, I have that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's just the app. Just download the app. It's in cool. there. App Store, got it. <laughs> but uh, but you basically enter the, um, the time of departure, the flight time, and then it's, it's already got your destination and your um, departure airport in there. And then you enter your altitude. And what it does is it analyzes the entire flight path that's in your flight plan already. And it will show you basically a profile view of the potential turbulence on your route. Meaning if you're crazy. Yeah. If you're climbing to 36,000 feet and you're going to stay there for an hour and then you're going to climb to 41,000 feet, it's going to show that flight path and the turbulence all around you. It's, it's really neat. And it's not a hundred percent accurate, but it's a pretty good guess. Hmm. So, what would, I mean, what would you say or what do you say to people who are like really afraid of, of turbulence in particular, but are, let's just say afraid to fly? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if they've got the time to sit down and talk about it, I'll usually, I'll usually use this analogy, uh, where I talk about e- either a boat in a water or uh, a submarine. So, you know, if you're, if you're in a ski boat and you're going 60 miles an hour, maybe that's too fast in a ski boat. I don't know much about boats, but let's say you're going fast. I don't want to fast. be water skiing at that speed, but <laughs> I was going to say, I'll be on board. <laughs> but, uh, but let's say you're going real fast in a ski boat and you hit choppy water. It's not going to damage the boat, but it's going to be, it, it's going to be maybe tough on you to, to handle some of that chop. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with an airplane, the, the stress tests that they do on those things and, and the capability and the structural, the structural integrity of those wings is just so unbelievable that the turbulence that even the potential turbulence that we could experience that we absolutely avoid hundred percent of the time is, is, is not going to hurt the airplane. So it's like a boat through choppy water. And then the other fear that everybody has is it's this common fear that if the engine fails, the airplane's going to fall out of the sky. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not really even possible because you kind of have to, the the airplane is got wings, baby, not a helicopter. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a helicopter, right? (laughs) Yeah. You're basically flying through an air mass and you can't see the air mass because it's invisible. So I think that's what, scares people is yeah. the the mass that you're flying through you can't see with your eyes but mm-hmm. if you're in a submarine and you're in you know you're in the middle of the ocean in a submarine and your engine fails in the submarine and it can't propel you forward you're not going to just drop like a rock to the bottom of the sea you're going to slowly drift and that's exactly what happens with an airplane you're just mm-hmm. you're just flying slower we're well, not even flying slower necessarily you're just flying through the air mass 
Um, you don't have any forward thrust from the engine, but that doesn't help you fly anyways. The wings, what helps you fly. So if yeah. you were to lose one or even both the engines, which will, which will almost never happen. Right. Um, you're not going to fall out of the sky. The airplane will, will fly just fine. And we have procedures to, to fly with no engines. Um, not no engines, but maybe yeah. with one, one engine to, um, to the next available airport. Yeah. I know something that definitely freaks some people out. My mother-in-law at least is when, you know, there's cloudy weather or fog and you're landing with like very limited to almost no visibility. Sure. I mean, have you had some landings where you're like basically not seeing lights until just before touchdown? And what is that like? Because it's that awesome. seems oh, okay. All right, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a blast, man. It's probably the most fun thing we do at work is is that type of flying. And it's there is no more risk to doing that than there is to doing anything else we do because hmm. it's a very highly trained maneuver. We have so much technology that even when we're flying in beautiful weather, we're doing it exactly, pretty much exactly how we would in low visibility conditions instrument, right. instrument wise. Right? That's a great point. So we're not doing anything different. Now, if you get really, really low visibility, we do have low visibility procedures on arrival that we're using that they're not unique or, or new or, or more difficult to do. We, we might not do them all the time, but for example, you know, we can do a low visibility approach and the captain, at least in the 737, has a HUD or heads up display. So when he's looking out the window, he's actually got, he or she's basically got this. this You're basically seeing the runway right there. Yeah. They've got all of this data that's being projected through their view out the window and it i mean it brings them right right down to the runway so it's it's pretty incredible how again the engineering with all this stuff it's just really incredible how they've they've engineered all of these safety measures into this thing where yeah i, for, I forget who you said was nervous if it was your mom but uh mother-in-law uh, my mother wife to some degree as well but she's getting better Sure. Yeah. Tell her it's the most fun thing we do at work. <laughs> <laughs> not sure if that will make her feel better or worse. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe not. But I'll, uh, I'll just let, th let them know that you're not concerned. We're not concerned at all. And, um, yeah, we're, we're not concerned at all about it. If anything, it's, it's a pretty enjoyable thing to be able to do. Obviously auto, you have autopilot, which takes care of most of this stuff when you're at cruising altitude. Correct. I mean, I know you're not just like sitting there twiddling your thumbs. You're kind of checking things to make sure everything's still uh, nominal, I suppose, if that's the right use of that yep. word. But I know you do get some time to look out the window every once in a while. And uh, what what are some of the most beautiful things you've you've seen from the cockpit? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, I, I probably had one of the best views last month flying in and out of Seattle because um, you can yeah. see Mount Rainier out there. That's really pretty. And... Um, you know, the other place that kind of blew my mind was flying in and out of, um, it was Bozeman, Montana. It okay. was really pretty as well. Before COVID, we used to do a lot of Central America flying. Uh -huh. Guatemala City is really cool to fly into because you basically basically make this turn around a volcano in order to get uh -huh. into that airport. And yeah. uh, San Jose, Costa Rica has a lot of really neat terrain too. So I'm not sure if you've ever been down there, but those, those have, terrain areas. It's been a little areas, while, but I... Yeah. Are in all the volcano down there in Costa Rica is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, exactly. Have you yeah. ever seen what do they call that? St. Elmo's fire, that phenomenon on the winds on the 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 glass cockpit glass? Yeah, and it it blows my mind every time I see it. It's the Okay, so you've thing. seen that. So is that yeah. fairly common? You know, it depends on the airplane. Um 
Ah. It's yeah, it does happen on the 737 every now and then. On on the last jet I was on, uh, this regional jet, it was an Embraer. It happened a lot more, but um, hmm. it's it's really cool. And you know what? I cannot find a lot of videos online or on YouTube to show people a good example of that. I wish somebody had a good video of it, but I have not really seen a lot of them. Well, hey, just let me know next time. I'll come right up. <laughs> yeah, man, we need you and your uh, camera skills up there to to photograph it when it's happening because it, it is pretty mind-blowing. For people who don't know what that is, and, and Evan, feel free to jump in at any time, but basically my understanding is like as you're flying past or near thunderstorms, it's like the static electricity builds up on the glass and it basically looks like um, lightning bolts are like yeah. glued to the cockpit windows. <laughs> That's exactly it. I don't know if you remember those things we had as kids. Um, you get it at like Spencer's or something. It was a toy and it was like this lightning. It was like lightning that was consistently moving around in this like glass orb. Mm. Oh, yeah. Put, yeah. 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 You know what I mean? You put your fingers on that orb and it would like it yeah, would come to your, match finger. your fingers. It, yeah. That's basically what it is on your windshield. It doesn't make a noise or anything, right? It's just. Nope. Wow. The photos I have seen of that just make it look crazy cool. Yeah, it it is really neat. And it's one of those things, too, that um, it'll kind of sneak up on you. You don't really know what's happening. And then you look up and all of a sudden you have this really incredible light show. Another really (laughs) cool thing that happens is if you if you can poke your head up and sort of look at the front of the nose of the aircraft during the same type of situation, you're flying around weather and there's like a lot of static electricity built up on the aircraft you'll get sometimes a green glow. And again, it's airplane specific, but on the 7.3, you can get this uh, green glow on the nose as you're going through weather. It's pretty mm. neat. Wow. Do you have cool a favorite stuff. favorite time of day to, to fly? Really early morning, probably, when the sun's coming up. Sunrise. Yeah, it's really smooth, and there's no heat from the uh, sun heating the ground, so it's just really smooth air, right. usually. Right. So even if you have a similar view at sunrise, you've got the turbulence issue then. Right. Potentially. Exactly. Hey, have you ever seen the Northern Lights from the, uh, just from, from the a, air? Just from a plane. Yeah. Yeah. Where were you? Do you remember where you were going when you saw it? Yeah. I was flying from Newark to Seattle in October. And oh. I was sitting on the right side of the plane. And, oh, get yeah. Out. And, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. It wasn't like super pronounced. I did actually film it because I had this camera that I have is like really good with low light. So I cranked the ISO cool. to like 120,000. I mean, wow. the footage was garbage, but when I looked back, it was like, yeah, you can definitely see, <laughs> sure. see it. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Have you seen that a little more often? No, not often at all. That's, that's why I was asking. I've only seen it once going, going over uh, the North pole, but um, I, I figured since you were doing so much flying. I, I think you've been to, you've been to Asia quite a few times, haven't you? Yeah. I've been there about a half dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you were going to say you'd seen it like over the pole maybe, but that's I'm interesting. usually asleep by then. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's the problem. Right. Uh, I mean, because yeah, I'm such a snob now, but I, I, whenever I go on those longer flights, I definitely try to find a way to do it with the points and therefore to be up in the pointy For end. For sure. Are you a pretty good sleeper, uh, in the back of the aircraft like that? I would say, yeah, my issue is, (laughs) yeah, I'll get some flack for this. My issue (laughs) is they give you pajamas and then they don't give you your own air vent. So you're like so warm because the pajamas are like these thick cotton pajamas and then you can't get extra airflow. And then 
I sleep kind of hot. So oh. I can't get that. If I can't get that air blowing on me, oh, yeah. then I just get really warm. I was going to say, you don't have your own air vent? So what I did actually is I bought this $9 USB fan. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So because I just got so sick of like, you know, spending a hundred thousand miles on a flight and then just not being able to sleep. I mean, I would literally right. wake up like drenched in sweat. Oh no. That's I a bummer. Mean, yeah. This is a, this is a first world problem of biblical proportions, but <laughs> sure. I, I mean, I'm like, come on, if I'm spending all this, I want to get the full use out of it. So yeah, I use that USB fan and that thing actually is amazing. Yeah, it works pretty well. Yeah, I do recommend that to anyone who's listening who has the same issue. I don't know what yeah. it is, but for some reason in like business and first class, they just don't have overhead air vents in the cat in like in the cabin. I didn't know that. Well, I do know that um, like the last time I sat in coach on a triple seven, I do remember thinking that I, I don't think I could reach it from a seating position. Like I had to stand up in order to reach it. That's also um, for sure a problem. Like I have really yeah. long arms. I'm, uh, well, I'm like, I'm pretty tall. So <laughs> I don't, right. I'm not just like an ape, but um, <laughs> right. yeah, that, that's definitely an issue. But, and, and it's not like every single plane. I also feel like it might not even be every single airline, but I guess that wouldn't really make sense. I think maybe the 787s have it. The triple sevens are for sure like the worst culprit. And then I think I definitely know when I flew Lufthansa first class in the nose of the 747, same issue, no air vents. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, they give you forward. like a thick down comforter. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta manage your temperature quite well or risk. Interesting. Sweating yeah. through it all. You know, what's a kind of a funny design on the seven three is there's no cabin temperature for the flight attendants. So the flight attendants don't hmm. have any way to control the cabin temperature, which on the other, on a lot of other airplanes, they can have their own controls. So if they feel yeah. like we're not, you know, we're not in the cabin. So if, if they feel like it's hot, they could, they could cool it down. But on the seven, three, they don't have that ability. So if they um, like knock on the door, they're hey, can you turn it down us, back here? giving us a call to uh, fix what we screwed up with the temperature. Cause uh, we don't really, we're kind of flying in the blind a little bit. We've got yeah. temperature, you know, indi indicators up there, but they're not super accurate. So it's a, it's kind of a constant, struggle throughout the whole flight to get that thing at the right temp. So I could see that being an issue. Uh, when I'm flying long haul, when they come and give me that like welcome drink before I leave and they're like, Hey, uh -huh. like, let us know if we can do anything for you. I'm always like, yeah, please just turn the temperature down. <laughs> oh, interesting. Like, I, I'm like, please Break do that it. right off the bat. Like before we even take off, like I'm just letting you know, it needs to be Arctic in here. Oh, and funny. if somebody tells you the alternative, like let's meet in the middle. Right. Well, it's so um, much easier to do that and then put more layers on, you know, especially on an airplane. Well, that's the thing. It's like they give you blankets, they give you pajamas. So yeah. I, I can definitely warm up a little bit uh, easier. Now with uh, COVID, like I think the rate at which uh, cabin air is refreshed and just changed in general has been brought up a lot. So how, I mean, how quickly does that temperature change take place? And then also what I've been wondering, to what degree can you perhaps adjust the speed of fans and filters and stuff to cycle air quicker than I, perhaps what was done like a year or two ago. Yeah. I don't know if I, t if I really know a lot of details in regards to that, to be honest, you know, we're, we're more on the operational side of it. So they tell us sure, what yeah. to do and how to do it. And we don't necessarily know the, all the really deep down technicalities of, of how maybe certain fans work. 
But what I can tell you is um, in regards to the temperature change, we, we can change the temperature relatively quickly. But, you know, as far as circulating the air goes, that, that cabin area is circulated uh, basically the whole flight. And we do mm-hmm. have recirculate, recirculation fans on the aircraft, which will recirculate certain air. But it's basically being recirculated from the front end to the back end of the aircraft. And, um, you know, since you're flying through air, that there, there's new air coming coming in and out of the aircraft um, all the time through, yeah. um, you know, through a machine that we call, we call it a pack. But anyways, yeah, there's, there's new air in and out all the time and it does recirculate, but I don't know if I could give you a lot more detail um, as to the inner workings than, than that, to be honest. Okay. Well, that's, that's good enough. <laughs> I got, I got a goofy question for you. Sure. What do you think when you hear people clapping after you land the plane. <laughs> I think uh, I didn't screw it up enough for them to not clap. So I guess it's a good day. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't mind it. I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't clap myself just because that's, you know, I guess that's what we're supposed to be doing is putting it down gently and safely. But um, I mean, that's my it, issue. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was the, uh, what was the alternative there? Yeah. The alternative uh, was you were not going to be able to clap. Uh, yeah, exactly. Honestly, I, I think probably because of our careers, we, we hear so many stories of how afraid people are to fly. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just psyched to, to get people from A to B and, and have them feel okay. Cause I've been in scenarios too, where I just have a lot of anxiety. Like, to be honest, I have a lot of anxiety in the back of a van uh, in, you know, on a highway in the back of a van, I do not, I do not like that scenario. I don't have any control. I can't see out the front window. Right, I don't know yeah. if the driver is going to fall asleep. Right. There's like this claustrophobia that comes with not having control of a certain situation. Mm-hmm. So I, I do, I do think it's a little humorous when people clap, but it's probably overall a good thing. It just means they're psyched to be there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, is there anything that passengers do regularly that does drive you a little nuts? Probably stand up before the seatbelt signs turned off when we're on the ground or taxiing to uh, the gate. And I think that probably comes from just maybe not being familiar with an airport environment. Because if I were to take the Amtrak, for example, uh, I can stand up whenever I want on a train. So if you're used to taking trains and then you get an airplane, you probably don't think it's any different. But um, there's a lot of safety concerns with people standing and, and really you're kind of putting the people around you in danger too. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not like we find it annoying, but we would, we would definitely, I, the flight attendants are usually really on that because it's, um, it's a safety concern. So, but there's not a lot. We, I really try to, I mean, I try to have patience because it, what I think what happens is that we're flying three or four maybe two, three, four times a day, like different Mm -hmm. legs. We fly so much. We're so used to airports. We're so used to the airport environment and the airplanes in general that we forget that a lot of these environments are super stressful for people. They're, they're lost. They, you know, they, they don't know how to navigate airports. They, they're stressed out in the airplane. There's like, just there's, there's sounds and smells and things just, they don't, they're out, they're outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. So I think I'm just trying to, I'm trying to keep that in mind, even though it's really easy for me to forget, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely guilty of that. I mean, I, I fly a ton, uh, not as much as you, but, uh, yeah. I don't I, know, I, man. Watch watching your Instagram. I feel like you maybe fly more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. On I spoke with, uh, this guy named Tom Stuker, who, uh, maybe, you know, he just crossed 22 million miles flown with United, but he's flown a couple million more with other airlines as well. So he's like, call it like 25 million total miles flown. Dang. And yeah, which is like a crazy, crazy amount. And if you're like a long haul captain and you're flying, you know, as much as the FAA will allow, I mean, you're going to fly a max, what is that? Like a thousand hours a year. Yep. So you can, it's basic, call it like 400,000 miles a year. I mean, this guy, Tom is like, he's like double that. That's unbelievable. How, what does he do? Well, he's a car dealership consultant and most of his clients are in Australia and Asia and uh-huh. he lives in Newark, which is about as far from Australia and Asia as you can get. <laughs> you can get. He's been to Australia over 360 times. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's like almost every week. He's, yeah. He's, yeah. And I, mean, I think sometimes multiple week, times a week. So, I mean, it's pretty crazy stuff. That's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. So when you, when you're flying a lot, it's easy to look at the people who don't and just like think that they're crazy, but yeah, there's just like certain things that you forget, you know, you'll see somebody do something and you're like, wow, I kind of forgot that. Um, it's just like it, it, something becomes so normal. And I don't know if I come up with an example off the top of my head, but things just become so normal for us that we forget what used to be out of our comfort zone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Does he enjoy flying that much? Do you know? Oh yeah. I mean, he loves it huh? at that level. It's like, it's like his hobby as well. Oh, that's so cool. Good yeah. For him. Yeah. It's crazy. I like to, uh, ask everyone on this show what impact they believe travel has had on them as well as what impact they believe travel has on the world. Oh man, that's a tough question. I mean, for me personally, it's, it's just kind of this magical romanticized hobby that I don't know if it was ever a hobby, but it, it's, I view it as a hobby and a career at the same time. So it's definitely just a huge, huge part of my life. I don't know, you know, what I would, what I would do without it. So for me personally, it's, um, it's just a huge part of my life for the world. I mean, that's, that's a tough question to answer, but it, I think it's a cool question because if you look, you know, I was talking to uh, my grandparents last weekend, for example, and they took, they took one trip one, they said they took one vacation in their um in their young adulthood and i thought that that was so interesting because my grandpa loves to travel and mm-hmm. um you know what they they did take i shouldn't say it that way they didn't take it one vacation but they didn't travel near as much as we did and uh, as we do and just lately in the last you know 20 30 years it's just unbelievable how much how small the world has gotten because of airplanes you know what i mean Absolutely. Yeah. So not only is it changing, you know, things for businesses and in personal travel, but I think it's just, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I think it just brings everybody a lot closer. You know, you now, nowadays you can have friends in, in Japan and Australia and uh, Costa Rica and, and somehow you end up seeing them three or four times a year. So it's just definitely making the world a smaller place, I think. That's Evan Hunt. You can find him on Instagram at PetKey5. And if you ever have the pleasure of flying with him, make sure you critique the landing. 
If you enjoyed the show, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a review or share it with someone who might find it interesting. This actually helps me out a lot. Feel free to reach out to me on social with any questions or comments about the show. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimace, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.